Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. The pandemic is supposed to change everything. That at least is what we're being told by many analysts and indeed many guests on the show. Uh, the real question, of course, is whether it changes the very architecture of power, political, cultural and economic power in our early 21st century world, particularly in America. Uh, Daniel Markovitz is an expert on that power. He is part of the power world and also a critic. He teaches at Yale Law School and he's the author of an extremely provocative book published last year called The Meritocracy Trap. Uh, Daniel, uh, what is the role of this, what you call this meritocracy, in the organization of cultural, political, and economic power in 21st century America? Well, thanks very much for having me on, Andrew. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, a meritocracy is a form of social and economic life in which people get ahead based on their own accomplishments rather than on, say, their social class or their parents' breeding. Um, in our society, meritocracy operates centrally through education and through the extremely intensive education that especially elite parents now provide for and buy for their children, which is qualitatively different from the education that middle-class parents can afford. And because education works, and people who have the most elaborate education tend to have the greatest accomplishments. Meritocracy has now become a way in which elites can transmit their privilege dynastically down through the generations. So it's a kind of caste aristocracy. And uh, ironically, I guess it was uh, a system designed to undermine the birth kind of aristocracy uh, that previously existed in America in the late 19th, early 20th centuries. Exactly so. So meritocracy was embraced in England in the 19th century in places, in France, in the United States in the 20th century, by progressive elites who wanted to break the old hereditary caste system. And they did so because they believed correctly that breeding did not determine ability or effort. And so if one made advantage turn on accomplishment, the thought was that this would open up the elite. And it worked for a while, but then the new meritocratic elite became so good at educating and training its children that the thing that was designed to produce equality of opportunity became the largest obstacle to equality of opportunity in modern America. So it is exactly a kind of aristocracy, only now based on schooling rather than on breeding. Daniel, to what extent do you think we can blame the meritocracy in America for the current crisis? Are the, are the meritocrats to blame, particularly for the seemingly inadequate, inefficient, incompetent response to the pandemic? Well, I think that's a, a, a very good, but also very complicated question. 
Uh, on the one hand, meritocracy produced the enormous inequalities, economic, social, and political, that we've been suffering for some time. And those inequalities then produced a kind of dysfunctional politics and dysfunctional economics, which together, I think, generated the kind of government and state that we now have, which has proved itself unable and unwilling to cope with the pandemic. So the root cause might indeed be meritocratic inequality, but the more immediate cause is a lack of competence and a lack of basic decency in the leadership of the country. And those things are not meritocratic. Right. And the current leader of the United States, at least, seems to me at least to be profoundly anti-meritocratic, even if he is himself a product in some ways of the meritocracy. Yes, I think, in fact, he is more nearly an old-fashioned aristocrat in the sense that he inherited his privilege, not based on his accomplishments, but just by having a father who gave him a massive inheritance. And uh, he has run in a backlash against the meritocracy and draws much of his cultural and political power from the hostility that many who've been excluded by meritocrats feel against the professional classes. And what about his hostility to media? He calls it, of course, lamestream media, his hostility to science and scientists, or at least that science and scientists which don't agree with him. Is that also part of a backlash against the meritocracy? Well, I think the science part straightforwardly is, in the sense that one of the things that meritocracy produces is genuine expertise and genuine capacity in the elite, but coupled with hereditary privilege, exclusion, and condescension to those who aren't in the elite. And so the hostility to experts, scientific experts, but also other kinds of experts, is very much of a piece with a populist backlash against meritocracy. I think the media is a little more complicated, but the media is also significantly captured by the meritocratic elite, and I think neglected many parts of our economic and social order for a long time. And in that sense, hostility to the media also plays to the populist backlash against meritocracy. It seems to me, Daniel, that so far, at least, the meritocracy is actually doing rather well out of this crisis. Wall Street is holding up well. Uh, most of the meritocracy seems happily working or not so happily working from home. The, the, the architecture, the infrastructure of the meritocracy hasn't really been disturbed yet, has it? So I think in economic and social fact, you're right. There's no question that those who have elaborate educations are massively disproportionately more able to work from home and keep their jobs than those who don't. And there's also no question that the schools to which the rich send their children are much more able to transition smoothly and effectively to distance learning than the schools that the rest of society sends their children to. But ideologically, I'm not sure the meritocracy is doing so well. Let me just give one brief example of this. It turns out that the workers whom we now call essential, because they are in fact central to maintaining some basic mim minimum of economic and social functioning and order, are precisely the workers who six weeks ago or eight weeks ago were called low-skilled, transitory, uneducated, 
and not paid very well. And the incongruity of this association that those who were not valued are now essential is shaking the ideological structure of the meritocracy quite profoundly, I think. I kind of buy that, and yet I don't also. Go back to 9-11, we, we, we were subject to endless fetishization of brave policemen and brave fire people and brave nurses and doctors, and yet the infrastructure of American capitalism didn't change. Uh, and I wonder whether we're going to be living through the same thing today. Is Sure, we're, we'll fetishize the, the nurse on the front line, we'll fetishize the person who picks up our garbage and delivers uh, our food to us and our shopping. But to actually fundamentally change the system, to change the system uh, requires more than that fetishization, doesn't it? Sure, I think that's right. And there's always a question whether shaking the ideological or intellectual foundations of an order will actually shake the order. But, but this situation is a little bit different from post 9-11 in the sense that the essentialness of the essential workers reveals something important, um, which is this. It can be put in economic terms. There's a difference between the average product of a worker and the marginal product of a worker. The average product is what you get if you take everything that all that type of worker produces and divide it by the number of workers. The marginal product is how much one additional worker adds to output. And what we're seeing is that the average product, for example, of a garbage man is enormously high, whereas the marginal product is quite low. And meritocratic markets pay people their marginal product. And the reason why all the essential workers that we're seeing now are in fact essential is it's becoming very clear just how high their average product is and just how much they are underpaid by a regime that pays them only their marginal product. And I think that is, an, is something that people are going to begin to see more clearly and understand more powerfully. And it will shake a sense of who deserves what in our society. But with all due respect, Daniel, that sounds a little bit academic. Put that in, put that in, 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 in layman's terms. How will that, your theory of marginal labor manifest itself in political terms with the with the, uh, the, 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 the rebirth of Bernie Sanders or perhaps a shift to a more radical agenda for Joe Biden? I think one thing we're going to see is that workers like Amazon warehouse workers, like the meatpacking workers in some of the pork packing plants that are now being ordered to go back to work, are going to realize that collectively they have real power and the rest of society is going to have a lot more sympathy with them. And, you know, what unions do is they get workers whose marginal product is lower than their average product, something closer to their average product. So what unions do is they use collective bargaining to get people what they deserve in a certain sense. And I think we're going to see a lot more of that in the 10 years to come than we've seen in the 40 years in the past. Aren't we going to need to see a, a kind of a, a, a transvaluation of labor? Isn't the meritocracy going to need to rethink itself or experience its own cultural crisis? Well, I think it's also the case that people at the top are going to be slightly shamed by this and have a sense that they are not doing their part in the face of a collective calamity. 
And um, their children in particular are going to become more aware of their privilege than they have been and more dissatisfied with the social order that is so manifestly unequal and manifestly unjust. So yes, I think it will shake the confidence at the top as well as empowering those who have been excluded. What is it about the meritocracy that is so annoying, especially to people like myself? Is it because they're so hypocritical? Is it because they have, it seems to me at least, a deep belief in their own morality? Well, I think it is the case that what, you know, what meritocracy does is it produces structural inequality and systematic structural exclusion. That's the incredibly unequal education that the rich buy for their children that no one else can afford. And then it redescribes the failures of those who don't get the education to get to the top as an individual failure to measure up rather than as structural exclusion. So it, it produces a kind of economic injury and then adds a moral insult to the economic injury. And, and that's enraging and, and properly so. But what is it about this liberal elite? You're, you're uh, in New Haven, Connecticut. You're, you're very familiar with the, the elite in New York City, in Boston, in Connecticut. I'm very familiar with the elite in, in the Bay Area, in Los Angeles, on the West Coast. Um, that they can simultaneously be very critical of Trump and the Republicans and, and every other element of supposed neoliberalism and yet be the, the core piece in the, in the neoliberal architecture. How can they get away with that? Well, how they get away with it culturally or economically has a lot to do with economic and cultural power. How people get away with it in their own minds, because one of the ideas of the meritocracy trap is that there aren't really villains. Rather, there are structures that lead ordinarily decent people to behave in ways that are not just and that are destructive. And how they get away with it in their own minds is that it's genuinely hard to be a meritocrat. They've worked hard their whole life. They've studied hard. They've been tested. They've had the prospect of failure held out in front of them. They work long hours now. And so they don't feel themselves to be an, an aristocracy. They feel themselves to be working people. And in a sense, they're not wrong. But in another sense, they're working people in a system that systematically disadvantages most of their fellow citizens. And I think it's that juxtaposition that is both so maddening to people who are excluded and explains why those inside the elite don't feel themselves to be in the wrong. Is the first crack in the, in the architecture of our meritocratic order going to be from the universities? Is it possible that um, that the pandemic will actually undermine the, the economics of our um, post-school education infrastructure? I, I think it's not likely that the pandemic will dramatically harm the most elite universities. These are so wealthy and such a good value proposition for their students that they will be able to ride it out. I think that there's a large class of other universities who are much less wealthy, training much less rich students, and whose less elite degrees are less economically valuable, who really will be in trouble. And, and so I fear that what the pandemic will really do 
is exacerbate the caste system in education rather than end it. So where's the crack going to come if it's not from education? Well, you think, think labor? You think that organized labor? I, I think new ways of organizing labor are going to make a difference and are going to start asserting their power. I actually think the fight for 15 has been a powerful organizing technique, not along the lines of traditional unions, but using new organizing methods. I also think that the politics of populism will frighten the elite. And finally, and we haven't talked about this yet, but this is also something that the Meritocracy Trap book spends some time on. To be in the meritocratic elite is to work very long hours and in an alienated way. And this elite itself is starting to question whether the deal it has is so good for it, particularly young people, particularly my students who have worked and been tested and threatened with exclusion their whole lives and now find themselves graduating from an elite law school and facing 80, 90, 100 hour work weeks as far as the eye can see with increasingly little chance of making partner at the firms they want to go to. So the elite itself is beginning to realize that this is not a good system for it, and that will be another crack in, 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 the, in the incumbent order. What about the role of culture and the family in particular in this? Because after all, the meritocracy is, it seems to me, to be built on the two-parent family and the contribution of both parents to the success of their children. Well, an astonishing thing that's happened over the past 50 years in the United States is that there has been... Uh, an immensely powerful relationship built between education and class on the one hand and family structure on the other. So in 1970, the odds that a woman would have a child outside of marriage were largely independent of her education. Today, women without a college degree, so that's roughly two thirds of American women, are more likely to have a child outside of marriage than in it. Whereas women with elite college degrees or graduate degrees basically never have children outside of marriage. And children in the 5% or so richest and best educated zip codes are something like 90% likely to spend their entire childhoods in intact biological families. So what we're seeing is that the family itself has become a technology for meritocratic education and the dynastic reproduction of privilege. And that's very damaging to our social order also. It's ironic that the best thing that could happen to the meritocracy is it becomes a leisured class. And these kids of wealthy parents fritter away their money in uh, drugs and sex and, 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 and other kinds of orgies. Wouldn't that be to everybody's benefit? Well, maybe. You know, I had a math professor once who said that to reject one extreme is not to affirm its opposite. And, and so it may be that the best situation would be is if the elite could realize that if it gave up something like a third of its income, it could get back leisure and authentic choice at work. And then the workplace could be restructured to make better and more jobs for the middle class. And then both sides of the divide could benefit by getting a little closer to each other. Uh, so Daniel, finally, um, uh, for those of our listeners who want to smash the meritocracy, Apart from their book, for, uh, sorry, apart from your book, what should they be reading as they're stuck at home in this pandemic? So this is an old-fashioned answer, but I would 
go back to Marx's economic and philosophic manuscripts of 1844, and in particular, just the section on alienated labor. Set the rest of it aside, which is often dense, wrongheaded, confused in a variety of ways. But the section on alienated labor gives an incredibly clear, both analytically and emotionally powerful account of how it is that certain forms of capitalism and capitalist inequality destroy the experience of work and production for almost everyone who comes into contact with them, and why that's really harmful for human flourishing. It's powerful, it's 20 pages, it's beautifully written, and well worth reading or rereading, especially now. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.